O Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts together, be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Our text for this evening is the epilogue of the book of Job. It can be and has been read as superficial ending to an otherwise profound book. It can be and has been read as kind of a surreal ending that calls into question everything that has preceded it. But these kind of readings do justice neither to the details of the epilogue nor to its relationship to the rest of the book. And frankly, these kind of readings don't preach. So let's look at the reading that takes into consideration its relationship with the rest of the book, the whole book and its context, a reading that will preach. Let's draw our attention to three particular points in the epilogue, knowing that much more could be said about each one. The first point, Job's response. Job responds to the divine speeches by acknowledging that he has neither God's power nor God's wisdom. He proclaims, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job accused God of creating a world of chaos, and God responded by showing Job the world as it really is, a place of order, but also of freedom and beauty not centered on human beings, but full of wild creatures that Job had never imagined. And somehow, through that vision of creation, Job's fierce hope is fulfilled. Early in the throes of despair, Job had proclaimed, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Now after the divine speeches, Job says to God, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you. I see you. Remember the psalmist? Taste and see the ways of the Lord and know that the Lord is good. Job not only hears, he sees God. Somehow through the grand vision of God's creation, Job's profound desire to be in the presence of God has been fulfilled. He has seen God, and that vision moves him out of despair into life again. Job does not objectively repent on his ash heap, browbeaten into submission. Instead, he acknowledges that he spoke of things he did not understand. He recants. And he realizes anew his place in the world, a mortal human being. But at the same time, this creature of dust and ashes, like Abraham before him, is privileged to stand in the presence of God himself. Now I see you. Job is not the center of the universe. He knows that now. But he has a place. He has a role to play. And he takes up that role again in the verses that follow. The second point, the friend's reprimand. The lectionary reading skips verses 7 through 9, 
which tell the story of God's response to the friends. It makes an important point that I want to include. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz and Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has done. For all their speaking about God, for all their accusations of what Job has done to inherit or merit this suffering, the friends never once in the book speak to God. They never once pray for their suffering friend. Job, on the other hand, moves from speaking only about God to speaking more and more directly with God. He holds on to God with one hand, and he shakes his fist at God with the other. He stays in relationship with God addressing God directly, even at the depths of despair. And for this, he is commended by God. And then Job, the sufferer, becomes Job the mediator. God commands his three companions to offer sacrifices. And Job, still presumably covered with boils, offers prayers on their behalf. He, for whom they never prayed, now prays for them. And God accepts the prayer of his suffering servant, Job. We don't have the words of the prayer, but perhaps it begins, Father, forgive them. The third point, the restoration of Job. God restores Job's fortunes. He gives him twice as much wealth as before, and ten more children, and seems to many readers a cheap ending to the book. But note the details of his restoration. Job's three daughters are the most beautiful women in the land, and the three names translate to dove, cinnamon, and rouge pot. Don't quite get that last one. Rouge. Job's three daughters. Uh, Job gives them an inheritance along with their brothers, an unheard of act in ancient Near East. It seems that Job has learned to govern this world as God does. Ellen Davis, in her book, Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament, argues, the cautious patriarch of the prologue who offered preemptive sacrifices for his children has become apparent after God's own heart. Job gives his children the same freedom that God gives God's creation. And like God, he delights in their freedom and in their beauty. Davis writes, The great question that God's speech out of the whirlwind poses for Job, and it poses for us, is, Can you love what you do not control? It is a question worth pondering. Can you love what you do not control? This wild, beautiful creation, its wild and beautiful creator, your own children, your own family, your neighbor. 
As for the question of whether 10 children can replace those lost, Davis argues the real question is how much it costs Job to become a father again. Like a Holocaust survivor whose greatest act of courage is to raise children after the cataclysm, Job chooses against all odds to live again. Job and his wife choose to raise children in a world full of heart-rending beauty and heartbreaking pain. Job chooses to love again even when he knows the cost of such love. The book of Job is a resurrection story. The whole book participates in that profound biblical movement from death to life. It's not surprising, therefore, that the translators of the Septuagint add this first to the book of Job. And Job died, old and full of days. And it is written that he will rise again with those whom the Lord raises up. And perhaps that is an appropriate place to leave the story of Job, waiting with God's servants for God's kingdom to come. This complex work, this book of Job, probes the physical, psychological, and spiritual depths of despair and comes out on the other side into life again. In this movement, it testifies not only to the health, to the reality of inexplicable suffering, but also to the possibility of new life. Life lived out in relationship with God, the God of resurrection, who as both synagogue and church proclaim is faithful even unto death and beyond. There's an important reason that the book of Job is in the Bible. Because the authentic community of faith, in this case the Hebrew community of faith, acknowledges that innocent suffering does exist. Job represents innocent suffering. That suffering is authentic because it's not covered up or solved or answered or tidied up in the end. Authentic, healthy communities of faith acknowledge pain and suffering. And they bear witness to a loving God that wants to be in relationship with his children in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of despair, and in the midst of evil. This parable of Job is not speaking to us, giving us advice and counsel about the problem of innocent suffering, but rather it's about God giving, being in relationship with Job and with us. The book of Job is an example of God's beloved community, being its authentic self, loving God, and loving our neighbor. Job is a great gift from God to us. It's a gift because Job shows us how we can develop deep roots of faith in God, roots of faith that can withstand even the cruelest of life's sufferings. Powerful faith with deep roots is what allows us to experience the full blessings of peace and rest in our lives in Jesus Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The Lord hath promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when 
we've first begun. In the name of Almighty God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.